Father God, I just want to say thank you for this beautiful, glorious day, Lord. You allowed the sun to rise this morning. You allowed our feet to walk us into this church. You allowed our abled bodies to prepare ourselves for a message. Though we ache and travail, Lord, our body hurts. Some of us are going through things physically and mentally that we have no answer for, that doctors have no answer for. But you're still walking through that with us, Lord. It may not be okay right now, Lord. It may hurt, but we know you went through the same thing, Lord. So we cry out to you now, hopelessly saying, we can't beat this on our own, but we know the one that can the one with the perfect message that died for our sins, the one that loves us when we feel like we shouldn't be loved. We're about to do what you asked us to do, Lord. In Psalm, you tell us to, to study your word, Lord, to, to listen to your word, Lord, to engage in your word day and night. And we pray as Dan speaks that the spirit speaks through him, Lord, because he is but a feeble man like I. And he can do nothing on his own, Lord. We can't change hearts. We can't change minds. We can't create miracles, but you can. So bless these words that will come out of his mouth, Lord. Let them be sweet. Let them be beautiful. And even with our eyes closed, Lord, let them sink in deep and comfort us. Wrap your arms around us, Lord, with these words. Because you're beautiful. Your words are beautiful, and your love is priceless. So we thank you, Lord, as we hear these words and as we're here amongst friends, and even those that are here for the first time, let them know that we love them. They are now a part of a beautiful community. They are a part of your body, and may we love them well. It's in Jesus' matchless, beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Omar. So I was not originally scheduled to preach this morning to you, but by the providence of God, here I am. About midweek, uh, we decided uh, that I would preach this morning, and, and so I decided on Ecclesiastes uh, this morning as my text. And you might be thinking, man, that's a sort of a dumb idea, Dan. It's a, a very complex book, and got a short week to prepare. Uh, however, together as a staff, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and so I, have, I had a lot of uh, study already done in the book, um, and it was so encouraging to us as a staff, and, and since I was so far along with my study in it, I said, well, this is a good time to bring it to the church. And so, um, by God's grace, we landed here this morning. Like I said, Ecclesiastes is a very complex, uh, confusing little book, and so I got a lot of help from some experts in Ecclesiastes, and one of those experts that I used uh, probably as my primary resource for my sermon this morning was a guy named Zach Eswine. He wrote a commentary on the book called Recovering Eden, um, and by far my favorite commentary on Ecclesiastes, um, you know, I'm not going to add a lot to what Zach has already said. The message that Zach promotes through uh, this Recovering Eden commentary, people need to hear. And so, like I said, I don't have a lot to add to this uh, wonderful little book. 
Uh, like I said, he calls the commentary Recovering Eating, and so that's what I use for my sermon title, Recovering Eating. I love this view of Ecclesiastes as it points us to Eden by looking at what has become of Eden. Okay? Ecclesiastes is about just about the opposite of Eden. It's its near opposite. Ecclesiastes should make us long for the recovery of Eden. I believe we all long for Eden, whether we admit it or not, right? Everyone longs for healing. Everyone longs for freedom. Everyone longs to break the chains of addictions or some other enslaving sin. Everyone longs for healing, for peace, for unending satisfaction. Everyone longs for purpose and for meaning in life. Everyone longs for sorrow to disappear. And if you long for any of these things, well, then you long for Eden. You long for the return of Eden. Ecclesiastes forces us to take an honest look at ourselves and the world that we live in in order that we might long for something more. Are you longing for something more this morning? This is the aim of my talk this morning. This is the aim, I believe, of Ecclesiastes. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon, really. In fact, Ecclesiastes means preacher. So this is a sermon that we're looking at this morning. Most scholars believe that the preacher of this sermon is King Solomon. However, this is no ordinary preacher. In fact, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you're sort of shocked that a preacher would talk this way. Like, is this really a preacher? This sounds like a disturbed individual, to be honest. And so you're surprised when you come to the book of Ecclesiastes if you're used to some of the other books in the Bible. And it reminds me, reminded Zach, a lot of uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, you may have heard of it, it's called A Grief Observed. And in this book, this was written right after his wife died of cancer. And so people were pretty surprised to hear C.S. Lewis talk like he did in that book. To read his doubts about religion so raw and transparent was unusual and strange and confusing for a lot of folks. Let me, let me share a quote from this book. He says, It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist's chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talk to me about the consolation of religion or I shall suspect that you do not understand. He goes on, Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. This is C.S. Lewis, right? Readers did not expect him to talk this way. This is the writer of Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, which talks about the reason for suffering, and one of my favorites, The Weight of Glory. The same person that wrote those beautiful, glorious books is now talking like this, and it's surprising to people. Many who cherish the Bible express a similar reaction to the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? We don't expect the words that we find there. These inspired words disturb us and reveal aspects about God that are too often neglected. 
But one of the ways that God leads us to know him is by making us pay attention to ourselves. He shows us what we were made for and then bids us come and look at what it has become. He makes us look at our flaws, look at our shortcomings, and in doing that, we say there's got to be something more. In Ecclesiastes, God intends you to know him by requiring you to look plainly and without polish at yourself, your neighbors, and the world in which you live. Ecclesiastes confronts us with our own ills in order that we might come to know God as he is. It makes us long for the return of Eden. So this preacher, he's a sage mentor speaking to his students, not only as a giver of words, it's one of the things I love about Ecclesiastes. Like you feel like he's your companion on this tough road of life when you read these words so that, that, that you'll learn. Would you learn with me this morning? So we're surprised that this preacher, this sage mentor, says things like, I hated life. Have you been there? Because this preacher has. He's a companion with us in this life. He also says that gaining wisdom and knowledge does nothing but stress us out and make us sad. Most of us have not encountered this kind of wisdom preaching before. By Ecclesiastes, we see that God is not afraid to go there. He is not afraid of transparency, mystery, emotion, appeals to nature. He has an intimate familiarity with people's messes and people's beauty. Ecclesiastes shows us more of God than perhaps we knew or are comfortable with. So some of you might know Ecclesiastes is what they call wisdom literature. Of all the streets in the Bible, I believe that possibly the wisdom books are the least traveled streets, right? You think of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And the best way, and I love that Zach Eswine pointed this out to me, the best way to sort of view Ecclesiastes is in relation to Proverbs, okay? Proverbs, I love this, so remember this because Proverbs can be hard, because it's all kind of feels like sunshine in Proverbs. So Proverbs focuses on the norms and the rules, while Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. So think of Proverbs of like, generally this is how it works. And Ecclesiastes is, this is sort of real life now. All right, so for example, Proverbs 13, 21. Disaster pursues sinners but the righteous are rewarded with good. So according to this proverbial rule, if your life, life is a disaster, then you're a sinner and you're not righteous. Pretty discouraging, right? This is the logic of Job's friends that they used when they sort of assessed his tragic condition. Yet the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us the exception to the proverbial rule. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, And there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his evil doing. Here's the exception to the rule. Job's friends knew the proverbial rule but had no category for the exception that a righteous man can suffer too. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom literature that gives us the exceptions. No, not the exceptions to every single little proverb, but it tells us that life is not so tidy as proverbs might make it seem. So we need Ecclesiastes 
to sort of balance out the predictability of Proverbs, of the wisdom literature. God is the God of both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. We hate the exceptions, don't we? As students, learning the exceptions can be frustrating. Think about spelling for a second. Millions of exceptions, right? The rule in spelling is I before E, and what's the exception? Except after C, and sometimes Y, and in sounds like A, like way, and neighbor, right? <laughs> so we finally master the rule, but then the teacher says, well, it doesn't always work that way, right? So Proverbs then is the I before E, and Ecclesiastes is except after C, and sometimes Y, and it sounds like A, neighbor, and way, right? So get this. A student who cannot overcome her impatience with the exceptions and who remains hasty to avoid anything but the rule will struggle to spell, right? In fact, she she won't be able to spell. There are rules and then there are exceptions. So it is in this life. We need Ecclesiastes in order to keep us from entrusting ourselves to trite formulas under the sun. Ecclesiastes offers an exceptional voice to remind us that we cannot walk out into our neighborhoods and hand out a one-size-fits-all t-shirt. Life is not that simple. Life is not that tidy. Life is not that easy. The preacher describes life as it actually presents itself under the sun. The preacher does not stick to the rules of what should be but addresses the exceptions to account for what really is. He's getting real here. He's getting raw in Ecclesiastes. I love the illustrations that Zach puts in our minds for how to think of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He says, if Proverbs is like a math problem, mostly dealing in equations which one side adds up into another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone, right? If Proverbs is like meteorology, giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, and Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather. Fickle in all of its unpredictability, can rant in storms and then blow with a mid-morning breeze. This is Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. You're a good man, you're going to have a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. So I believe that most of us live in the exceptions. Most of us live in this city of Ecclesiastes where life is not so tidy. So Ecclesiastes comes to us as an unexpected voice, but we need this voice in our lives to navigate life under the sun. With this in mind, I want to unpack chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. Verse 2 of, the chapter, of chapter 1 it really serves as sort of like a thesis statement or his main point, and then he uses the rest of the book to sort of unpack or support his main point. And let's look at what his main point is. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity in the Hebrew language simply means a mist, a wisp of vapor, a mere breath, a puff of wind. So metaphorically, it means elusive, fleeting, pointless, meaningless. So the preacher, you know, how would that be if I just got up here and says, life is pointless, right? 
This is what he does. This is his one and only point, that life is meaningless. He says it three times in his opening statement. All earthly experience is subject to vanity. It's a desperate word. Sort of you feel like when someone says something like this, they're at the end of their, work, the, their rope, ready to give up. So the preacher in the next verse begins his explanation about why everything is meaningless by asking a question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What gain are we after? All this running around, keeping a schedule, all the stress that comes along with that, the busyness of life, what is it all for? What true meaning is gained from all of our toil under the sun? The phrase under the sun is used often in Ecclesiastes. Remember, the preacher wants us to take a hard look at what has become of Eden. He wants us to take a look, take an honest look at the world and what we really gain from it. And so when you hear under the sun, think of seeking satisfaction in disregard to God. Like, I'm I'm going to the earth to find my satisfaction. I'm going to creation to find my satisfaction. Under the sun includes all of creation. Searching. So with this question, the preacher is asking us to consider what is true gain. Consider that question. What is true gain? George Bailey, in the famous Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, wanted to gain more for his life. And he said this in that famous movie. I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. So so George had this sort of restless feeling in his life. Two assumptions live within George's thoughts that we too recognize within our own. Assumption number one, George assumes that if importance is to be gained in this life, he must travel to another patch of earth somewhere other than where he presently resides to find it. Like importance, happiness, satisfaction is somewhere else than when I, where I am right now. Like my life circumstances, my job, my relationships, they're just not doing it for me. And I have this false assumption that I must go somewhere else, seek another relationship, find another job, move to another city. In our sin-infected minds, we always believe that gain, called happiness or satisfaction, is somewhere other than where we presently reside. This is George's first bad assumption. The second assumption George makes is that he believes that once he finds it, once he gets to that other patch of earth, that he will become satisfied. He will become a happy man, content, experienced, honored, fulfilled, no longer restless within himself or the world. If I just get to that other place, if I just get to that next stage of life, then I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be satisfied, I'm going to be content. We, like George, believe that the problem resides in our present place or present circumstances. The preacher here is telling us the problem is not localized to our current place or circumstances. When you get out of your current circumstances and you travel to another patch of earth, the same feelings of discontentment will eventually crop up because the problem is universal. It's not simply your current situation, your current life stage. The problem resides under the sun, right? 
We believe that a different place, a different life situation is the answer to our dissatisfaction. The preacher steps to the podium and says, nope, all of life is meaningless and therefore it will eventually bring about discontentment, whether you're on this patch of earth or another patch of earth, whether you're at this job that you're currently at or you're at another job, this city or another city, this life stage or another life stage. It's all under the sun. Job A and job B are not that different because they both reside under the sun. So if these two assumptions in George's head, head is our balloons, Ecclesiastes 1 is the needle that pops them. The preacher asks, let me get back to that verse, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? When I read that, I also think, of a wiser man than Solomon that said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Gain does not mean making a profit. The gain the preacher is after here in verse 3 is what is humanly meaningful versus what is not. Remember in verse 2 he's saying everything's vanity. And now he's saying where's the gain? Where's the meaning in all of life? Where is true meaning? He attends us to assess gain more broadly than our material holdings. Not only are we materially famished, but we are soul-starved people scavenging around for meaning, for a, a relationship that will give us satisfaction, searching for a purpose, a point to it all, attempting finally to arrive. When I arrive at X place, I know I will be happy. We want our lives to count. And so... Since we're prone to take this material and soul search for significance to the earth under the sun, the preacher painfully deconstructs these dreams for us by God's grace. Looking under the sun for gain by your toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. Shoe stores are awesome, they're great. They provide exactly what you need if you're looking for shoes. The problem is when you need medicine, the shoe store is a terrible place to buy it. The shoe store was not meant to provide medicine. For all of its beauty and all of its dignity, the earth simply does not possess the ability to provide the meeting that we so desperately need. It's like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The earth does not have what we're looking for. So the preacher uses the rest of chapter 1 to prove this point. He wants to prove that what we're searching for cannot be found underneath the sun. Ultimately, the preacher wants to point out what is vain or meaningless in order that we might discover what isn't. So in order to prove the meaninglessness of it all under the sun, the preacher does this in chapter 1. He says that everything is forgotten, everything is tired, everything is old, and we can't fix it. Pretty happy chapter, right? <laughs> everything is forgotten, everything is tired, everything is old, and you know what? We can't fix it. So let me just run through these quickly. Let's consider how everything is forgotten. In verse 4, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, and then he adds in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after us. If you stop and think about it, we have never heard of almost everyone that has ever lived. 
me say that again. We have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. Even most of those that we've heard of, we don't know personally. Even those that have gone down in history, we know incompletely. So whatever we clutch to, cling to, collect, strive for, will soon enough fade from memory. Where is the gain, the preacher asks in this? How much do you know about your grandfather? How much less do you know about your great-grandfather? How much less than that do you know about your great-great-grandfather? Like even your family in just a couple generations will not know who you are. How quickly are people forgotten, let alone the things that we strive after and worry about? The preacher adds this in verse 4 to sort of show us how short our time is here on earth. In verse 4 he says, A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. Dirt outlasts us. So where's the meaning in all of this? We view the same sun that Adam and Eve viewed thousands of years ago. And so the point the preacher is making here is that when we die, the sun's going to rise again the next morning. Other humans will come after us and the sun will rise on them and they'll take their turn and then they'll go. For this reason, looking for gain that exists outside of our windows during the days of our lives is like trying to make a snowman last in South Carolina. Right? You've been there in our one you know, snowman-worthy day a year that we get here in South Carolina, you build that snowman and two days later the thing is melted because it's 65 degrees out in the winter. Winter fades, the yard thaws, spring and summer have their way. Toiling among fading peoples and times in order to try to find meaning or purpose is fruitless, like the snowman in South Carolina. So not only is everything forgotten, like that melted snowman, but everything is tired. Everything is tired. The preacher sort of, in these verses, peels back the curtain of creation in order to, for us to see how tired things are. Beautiful creation, but he still shows that even vibrant creation in nature is discontented with the monotony of nonstop performance. You think you're on this sort of treadmill of performance, nature has been doing it since the beginning of time. He says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter. Creation, too, is like the shoe store for someone needing medicine. It can provide something good for us, something beautiful, but it cannot satisfy our true need. We grow bored of even good things. We always want more. The monotony of nature shows us this. The Apostle Paul talked about nature a good bit, and he describes this exhaustion of creation in terms of bondage, that the creation has been subjected to futility, that it's in the bonds of corruption, it's longing to be set free. Even nature is sort of stuck in this nonstop performance culture, and it wants free. Paul poetically portrays the beleaguered creation as a woman groaning in childbirth. Once Eden has become a place that groans. Eden has become a place that groans. And the preacher continues in verse 8. He says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
Nothing that we see or hear under the sun can bring us the gain that we strive for. Sunshine is pleasant and glorious, but it cannot satisfy. So like your kids on Christmas, three days later they're bored with their gifts. This is how it is with even the good things in our life. Restlessness always sets in and we want something more because we were made for something more. Not only does the preacher teach us that everything is forgotten, that everything is tired, but everything is old. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. No, it has already been in the ages before us. So the things, when he says there's nothing new under the sun, he's not talking about like inventions, right? We have new inventions all the time. Every year we get a new iPhone, right? So he's not talking about that sort of new. His focus references the toil of human beings under the sun and the absence of gain that those things try to provide us. Like nothing new has come along to satisfy us. Nothing new sort of gives us this meaning that we're all looking for. There's nothing new under the sun. Every human being has tried to navigate food, clothing, and shelter. Each one of us has wrestled with what it means to work, how to provide a way of life, to hope, to weep. We've all done it. And everyone after us will do it. And everyone before us has done it. Putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact. It has not delivered us from dictators and has not solved our selfish hearts. There's nothing new under the sun that can do this. If that's not bad enough, he sort of ends it here with, we can't even fix it. Not even the wise among us can fix it. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. We can't straighten this thing out. We can't fill up what is lacking in this world. And here he goes, he's, he's this, the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon. And look what he says. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For much wisdom is much, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Wisdom only adds to our sorrow. No matter how smart or powerful one is, trying to solve the unhappy business of life is like trying to catch the wind. It's like striving, running out there in your front yard and trying to catch some wind. You look like a crazy person out there. For all these reasons, the preacher yells, vanity, it's all pointless. Trying to find true meaning or purpose in a job, a spouse, drugs, alcohol, sex, money, a bigger house, a newer city is pointless because everything under the sun is pointless apart from him who created it. So chapter 1, sort of his introduction to the sermon, the preacher has already dismantled the earthly persons and things that we are prone to clutch to or stomp on in order to find meaning in this life. He pops the balloons of the bad assumptions that tell us that true satisfaction is simply in another set of circumstances. They're not. 
The real problem is not your circumstances or stage of life, but it is the cursed earth, the upside-down Eden, if you will. So we get to this point in a sermon, the preacher's sermon here, and we think, well, surely he's going to tell us about God. Yes, the preacher does tell us about God, but not in the manner that we expect. The preacher is no quick healer. The raw searcher wants the honest answers with no spin about the way things really are. Y'all been there, heard the spin. This evangelistic process is a slow one. Like he's in it for the long haul. Weekend sermons beneath a rented tent are not going to do for this preacher. True questioners will not trifle with slogans, quick answers, 160 character tweet or whatever the number of characters are now. It's just not going to work for people that are looking for true answers. The preacher tells us about God, but not as our Redeemer, not yet. At this moment, we are meant to consider God as the one who governs and has authority over everything that happens under the sun. God is the one who lets the gainless world go on as it is. He lets the meaninglessness continue. And we're supposed to see this in Ecclesiastes. God is the, is the one who does not stop our having to deal with vanity. So we must face this fact that the preacher tells us. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In chapter 1, it's as if the preacher has taken a snapshot of that frowning moment in the Garden of Eden. When all was lost. Like, you want to see what happened when Adam and Eve turned their back on God? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's a dark picture. Adam and Eve donned fig leaves to cover their shame, and the serpent is silent, caught in his treason, and God declares a curse upon all that he has made. Adam and Eve will live, but from that point on, thorns, thistles, pain, and sweat awaits them all east of Eden. Depression, addiction, dissatisfaction, discontentment await us all east of Eden. The preacher exalts that aspect of God's character that does not relieve Adam and Eve or the serpent from sin's consequences. God didn't relieve the consequences of our sins. This is the God who governs. He did not stop the unhappy business of paradise loss. We must linger here. God will not bring salvation by giving us escape or immunity from the now cursed world. In fact, Jesus, just before he was crucified, prayed that God would not take us out of this world. He says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus intends for us to endure the meaninglessness. Like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, Jesus too will highlight the suffering in the now cursed Eden. Jesus agrees with the preacher in Ecclesiastes that in this world you will have tribulation. There is no escape from what is under the sun, then rescue will have to come from somewhere else. We need to be rescued. Rescued from the vanity of it all. 
Ecclesiastes points us to the Creator for help, and we know that that same Creator is also our Redeemer. The time will come, praise God, in which God will personally squint and sweat beneath the sun's light and heat. God will enter this gainless world, endure its vanity, and feel the pain of Ecclesiastes 1. Jesus will walk the streets of the now-cursed Eden. Jesus will stand beneath the sun with us and feel this pain with us. From there, Jesus will look us in the eye and declare something Solomon could not. Jesus and Solomon said, agreed, in the world that you will have tribulations. But Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus conquered the meaninglessness. When he stepped into this world, he began the recovery of Eden. When Jesus died on the cross, he began the reversal of all that went wrong in Eden. So like Adam and Eve, we can again have a relationship with God. God is with us now, just like he was with them in Eden because of Jesus Christ. So in the monotony and the seeming vanity of life, there is God with you because of Jesus. So whether we are on this patch of earth, some other patch of earth, this life stage or another life stage, God is with you, just like he was in Eden. So believer, I have a question. Is that enough? In all the monotony and all the meaningless in life, is knowing that God is with you in that, is it enough? He wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. Being with God was not enough for Adam and Eve, and look where that got us. Is a relationship with the Creator enough for you to stop striving after the wind? Stop searching for medicine in the shoe store. Stop searching for true gain under the sun. The preacher knows it's not there. Jesus knows it's not found there. And you, deep down inside, know it's not found there because you were made for something more. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe you're here today and you're fed up with the pointlessness of life. Maybe you're like the preacher and you can't, you can't see past the meaninglessness. But by God's grace, you've seen a glimmer of hope this morning. Maybe for the first time you can see beyond what is under the sun. And you want it. Perhaps you want Him. You can have Him. You can have the one we spoke of last week who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and blessing and glory and honor. You can be part of the ransomed. You can be part of the kingdom and priesthood of God. If you want this, if you want Jesus, if you want to be caught up in the recovery of Eden, please see us down here at the silver table down front. We would love to talk to you. We would love for you to know how you can have a relationship with Christ. Let me pray. Father, we love you. This life is so uh, difficult. Um, 
It's, uh, it really does feel like a striving after the wind, Father, in all of our busyness, all of our uh, schedules and stress, all of our search for satisfaction and true meaning. Father, use what is uh, meaningless in life. Use what our eyes are open to this morning, the, the, the pointless monotony at times in our lives to point us to what truly is meaningful. Uh, Father, we need you. We need a rescuer. We need a substitute to stand in our place. We need Christ, the one who did what we are doing, did it perfectly, so perfect that it drove him to the cross. So, Father, let us see past the meaningless of life to the one who brought meaning to it. God, if there's someone here who's struggling to understand that, who maybe realized it for the first time this morning, would you open spiritual eyes this morning? Let them see the conqueror, the rescuer, the redeemer, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up. Uh, would you move in this room, Father? Do what, what I cannot do, not only what you can do. Would your spirit move, break into rebellious hearts and have his way this morning? Would you do that in Christ's name? Amen.